0: Amen. Well, good morning. It is great to see those of you who have come out and to worship with us in person. And it's great to have you guys joining us online as well. And I absolutely love that song. And Ryan knows that I absolutely love that song and that it's like my favorite thing when we do that song. But I want you to think about what you just sang for a minute. You are perfect in all of your ways and you're a good, good father. Do you believe that? when he takes your hand that's clasped around the most tightly held and treasured possession that you have, and in love he does this with it, that he might fill your hand with himself. As Matt said, we're beginning a new study today, and, um, and we're calling it Jesus is Greater. And here's what we're going to be doing week by week. So what we're going to be doing is week by week we're going to gather up The pattern of the life of Jesus, which as we've talked about for the last couple of months, is not life, death, burial, and then that's it. That's expected. Everybody does that. He's greater. So instead of just life, death, burial, and then that's it, it's life, it's death, it's burial, and then it's resurrection from the the dead, in his case, on the third day. So what we're going to do is we're going to take that pattern and we're going to march back into the Old Testament part of the Bible. And I want you to think about the Old Testament part of the Bible, It was written over the course of 1,100 years. That's how long it took to compose. It was written by arguably 40 or so different authors, different people, different professions, different personalities, different periods of time. It started being written about 1,500 years before Jesus is born. It finished being written 430 years before Jesus is born. We're going to take the pattern of the life of Jesus, which part of which is totally expected. It's normal. It's life, it's death, it's burial. But then here's the God part. Here's the greater part. Here's the unforeseeable part. Here's the part that I can't come up with on my own that you couldn't have come up with on your own. Only God can do this. It's life, it's death, it's burial, it's resurrection from the dead and even on the third day and we're going to take that back in to this part of the Bible that was completed wholly 430 years before Christ shows up on the scene and we're going to find it in the pattern of the lives of these people. How could that be? How could that happen? Like, how could these 40 or so different people over the course of 1100 years write 39 different books containing all of these different stories in which we find a pattern that is completely foreign to human imagination? Life, death, burial, and resurrection? Again and again and again. And again, unless the book that we're dealing with when we come to the Bible, Old and New Testament, has had a mind that has superintended the authorship. That's what we believe as Christians. You know, we talk about the Bible being the word of God. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that a person with a personality and certain gifts and so forth didn't sit down to write it. It means that God, by the Holy Spirit, sat down with that person using their gifts and using their personalities and using all of their peculiarities and wrote it through them. And one of the greatest arguments, in my opinion, for the validity of the Bible is this. It is that even though it's written over all of these many years, by all of these many people, it really tells one story, and it tells the story of Jesus and of his greatness. And so what we're going to be doing is gathering up life, death, burial, and resurrection, third day even in most cases, and we're going to take it back into the Old Testament. And we're going to look at the titanic characters of the Old Testament, these people who were amazing at so many things, including their failures. And we're going to find in each one of their stories, this pattern of a Jesus who is greater than they are, who is greater than their most colossal and embarrassing failures, who is greater than all of their struggles and circumstances. And right about here, you kind of go, well, you know, good for them. I'm glad they found a Jesus who is greater than all of that, but what does that do for me? Well, the Bible is for you, and that Jesus is for you. And their stories and how they illustrate the greatness of Jesus is for you. And the reality is he's greater than me. He's greater than you. He's greater than our most colossal failures. He's greater than everything that we will ever face. He's infinitely greater than everything and every one. I think more than anything, what we need right now is hope. That's the word that keeps coming to me. And as believers in Jesus, guys, we have it, but we have it not in our circumstances, not in ourselves, not in our abilities, we have it in him. So, we're going to start this experiment today with the story of Abraham, which we're going to pick up at its apex, like at the most significant moment in the life of Abraham in Genesis 22, beginning of verse 1, where it says this. It says, After these things, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, and listen, it's God speaking to Abraham, so Abraham's got to be excited. Like, if he's sitting in a chair, he jumps up, right? I mean, this doesn't happen every day, but it's happened, and he knows the voice of the Lord, and it's unmistakable. He's like, Here I am! God's like, yes, hey, have a seat. You know, just, just relax a little bit. You Just put some pillows around your chair just in case you go over because this is going to be intense. It's going to be one of these deals. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am, Lord. <laughs> and notice how God says this. It's like he takes out a tray of daggers in some sense. And not to take from this man, but to give to him. He wounds for his own good, but it's undeniably painful. And with every one of these statements, it's like he's driving another dagger into his heart. He says, take your son, your only son, Isaac. It means laughter. He's the joy and delight of his father whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, the place where Jerusalem will later be built. And when you get there, I want you to take him, and I want you to bind him. I want you to build an altar out of uncut stones. I want you to put wood on top of it. I want you to put your bound son like a lamb on that. I want you to peel back his head, and I want you to cut his throat. I want you to bleed him out entirely, spend his life... And consume his body in flame. Because that's the way they did burnt offerings. After these things, God tested Abraham. You bet. He said to him, Abraham, Abraham, and said, Here I am. God said, Okay, take your son your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, of which I shall tell you, the idea being, when you get there. Like, you'll get there and I'll go, that's the one. And then you'll know. And that is shocking and not shocking. I mean, it's shocking for obvious reasons, but like, When you read through the life of Abraham, you realize that the whole of the life of Abraham is preparing him in some sense for this test of his faith. If you go all the way back to God's first conversation with Abraham, God shows up and says, Abraham. And Abraham says, not really sure who you are yet, but I hear the voice. Here I am. What does God say? Pulls out a tray of daggers. He's like, all right, so... I want you to leave your country and, and I want you to leave your relatives and I want you to leave your father's household and then I want you to go to this land that I'm going to show you when you get there. Like we're going to get there and I'm going to go, there it is. What's in your hand, Abraham? What are you holding to? What is most valuable to you? Because I am perfect in all of my ways. I am a good, good father. Father. And you were loved by me, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to do this. Not to leave you empty, but to fill you like never before. So Abraham suffers these separations. He leaves. He goes. And he goes no doubt thinking, all right, you know, when I get to the promised land... Uh, it's going to be mine. And in addition to that, uh, it's going to be nice. You know, like, I mean, God has promised me a land and obviously it's going to be a great land of abundance and he shows up in the land and A, it's not his. It is armed with people who are filled, you know, and armed to the teeth, like they're not going anywhere. And B, as soon as he gets there, a famine hits and he watches it die. Ah. Okay, leave your homeland leave your relatives leave your father's household go to the promised land get all kinds of expectations all right leave the promised land and your expectations behind because that's going to be weird too and in fact it gets so bad in the promised land it's so dead there he can't keep it, his herds and his flocks and his servants and his wife and very significantly his nephew lot fed see his brother had died and he brought Lot into his house, loved him as a son, raised him. So he leaves the promised land and goes down to Egypt for food. After the famine is over and he gets word of it, he begins to head back into the promised land. And while he's in Egypt, God so prospers Abraham, particularly on his way out, that the overflow of the blessing of God on Abraham flows into the life of his nephew Lot. In other words, Lot becomes fabulously wealthy, kind of like Abraham. And they're driving their flocks and their herds, and they come back up into the promised land. And what happens is that instead of being grateful, instead of being, you know, like submissive, instead of being thankful, Lot becomes entitled. He becomes ungrateful. He becomes insolent. His herdsmen and Abraham's herdsmen are fighting it out for grazing land in the land that God promised who? To Lot? No. To Abraham. And Abraham is so gracious, he comes to his nephew, who is clearly the inferior in this equation, and who's insulted him. And he says, look, here's the deal. It's gotten so bad that we can't stay together, so we're going to have to separate yet another deal. What's in your hand, Abraham? Abraham. So he says to his nephew, look, you pick it. You go to the right, I go to the left. You go to the left, I go to the right. And his nephew greedily eyes out the land that God had promised, not to the nephew, but to Abraham, and he chooses the best of it. And in one fell swoop, Abraham lets go of his nephew, whom he'd loved like a son and who leaves in the most insulting of fashions, and the best part of the land that God had promised not to Lot, but to him. It's remarkable. God had promised not just a land, but a son to Abraham. He and his wife were barren, if you know the story, all of their lives, and they lived really, really long lives. They waited for the sun, 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 they waited, they waited and they waited and their hopes just waned and waned and, and his barren all of her life, wife Sarah, precious, amazing woman of faith, now moves all the way through menopause. She is dead procreatively at this point in the story. And in despair, she takes her handmaiden and brings her to Abraham and says, Look, I guess it must be God's design for you to have a son, not with me, but with her, which was not at all God's design. But Abraham has a child with Hagar, Sarah's servant, a boy, he names him Ishmael, who grows up in his house. He loves Ishmael, it's his son. But so much strife and division now begin between Hagar and Sarah and and so much danger inherent and a whole arrangement happens that God comes and he says to Abraham, What's in your hand, Abraham? Because it's time to do this. Send them away. Oh my goodness. Not easy. You work your way through the life of Abraham and it's separation after separation after separation after separation and not separations that God's divorced from that he has nothing to do with. He's not standing over here going, oh, that's terrible. I can't believe that happened to him. But neither is he sitting around going, "Ah, how can I harm Abraham? Hey, you guys want to throw some daggers at him? I got an extra tray, you know, like... He's doing surgery in the heart of this man who becomes throughout the whole of the Bible the example of faith, the father of the faithful. His work in this man's life extends to today and beyond our day until Jesus returns. It is significant, and at times it's very painful. And I think it's incredibly relevant for us, maybe even particularly right now, You know, we are living in a kind of a land of separation at the moment. I mean, you know, as I look around the room, even you guys are separated here. You know, a few here and a few there and kind of scattered around. We're separated from each other. We've watched families be separated from each other. Even in crisis, I can't go to the hospital to see my wife or my son or my daughter or my parent or my sister or my friend or my no. People are separated from their own health by COVID and by other things. I've been separated from things like graduations, You know, which when you line them up, I guess, against somebody who dies, maybe doesn't feel so big. But I'll tell you what, it's a big deal to be a student, make it all the way through high school, you know, and you want to walk across the stage, man. What if you were the valedictorian? Like you've been working on that GPA since kindergarten. Who got to hear your speech? I mean, whoever watched the video, I suppose. I know students who have gone off to college, they've been looking forward to it like for years, you know, they're like jacked and they're like in their apartment. They can't even go to class all online and then just add to that everything else a lot of separation in life a lot of this that is not outside of the heart of God and not outside of his control but perfectly within it guys God doesn't take from us to leave us empty. He takes from us to give us something greater. And the something greater is Him. And when we're like this, we need to grab hold of Him. So as you read through the life of Abraham, you think, all right, you know, I mean... I guess he's gone through all of this stuff. And I mean, there's something there that's prepared him for this incredible moment of testing of faith that he's obviously facing here in this story that we're looking at. But if you read through it just as yourself, you're not ready for it. Like you, you're reading through the story. And in fact, everything suggests the opposite of something like this. You get to this part of the story and God shows up, Abraham, he's like, hey, happy to see you. You know, it's me. Yeah. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Yeah, Take him you know, and then I want you to uh, offer him as a burnt offering. And you just kind of like, are like, what? That, that's insane. Like that, I mean, like you want to step into the story and get between God and Abraham somehow and, you know, like tell the Lord some things. Like you got to be kidding me, right? Like you're not actually serious. You don't want him. This would be horrific for any parent, like unimaginably so, but not Abraham, God. I mean, if you got to do something weird like, you know, choose somebody else. This man waited a hundred years for the birth of Isaac. He's a hundred when he's born. His wife is 90. Yes, it is a supernatural conception. He's the joy and delight of his father. He's named Laughter. Laughter. And the laughter swallowed up all of the pain of all of those years, almost a full century of of sorrow. But even more significantly than any of that, the reality is God's come to Abraham and he said, let me tell you about this son. So here's what I'm going to do. I, God, am going to conceive by the Holy Spirit a son, and he's going to be my son, God-made man, and I'm going to send him into the world... Through the lineage, the genealogy of your son, Isaac, which means that in this moment, in this story, the hope of the world is resident in this boy, Isaac. And I say that because Isaac's 15, 16 years old. He's not married. He has no kids. So then if you kill Isaac by obeying the command of God, the salvation of the world disappears right? Like, I mean, how can God fulfill this promise if the one through whom he's going to fulfill the promise is dead? And yet, what does Abraham do? It's remarkable. Abraham rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And then we read a very important detail. It says, And Abraham cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose, and he went to the place of which God had told him. Why is it important that he cut the wood for the burnt offering? Because it tells you what he's thinking. It tells you what's in his heart. I mean, Abraham doesn't know when he gets there what mountain God's going to point out. He doesn't know when he ascends the mountain with his son to sacrifice him, whether or not there's going to be wood sufficient to do it. Abraham's like, listen, my son is as good as dead to me, God, the moment you came to me and drove the daggers in. You command it, it's as good as done, I'm cutting the wood, I'm bringing it with them, there will be nothing to prevent me from doing this. And how long is the unique one and only son of the Father, in whom the whole hope of the world resides... Figuratively speaking, dead to his father. Three days. But The next words tell us that on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. God said, there it is. And don't dehumanize this. <laughs> don't move out of the, the passions of this. Like, I mean, I, you know, you can't watch this on YouTube. I don't know exactly how this played out, but I've got to believe that when God said, there it is, Abraham stopped and said, guys, can we just wait a minute? Can we just hang on a second? Just stay here for a minute. And he just walked off into the bushes to puke. This is gut-wrenching. Turn this man inside out. he came back and he said to his young men, the servants that he brought with him, and it has to be the single greatest statement of faith he ever makes, but I think it's at least arguably the single greatest statement of faith. He says to these guys, stay here with the donkey. He doesn't want them to interfere either. I mean, he's figuring, look, if he takes them up there with him and then he announces what's actually going to happen and none of them know yet, they might try to stop him. So he removes all the contingencies. He says, guys, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship, and then I'm going to return to you, and the boy's going to return in this urn. I brought this jar. Hand me that thing. It's in the satchel. And, no. He says, I and the boy will go up there, and then we're going to worship. And then what he means here, he says, and then we, is the idea, will come again to you. And not me looking like this and him in a jar, but me looking exactly like this, fully alive, and him looking exactly like this, fully alive. What in the world? Is he lying? Is that part of the deception? No, he's reasoned it out in his mind. He's figured it out. He's unriddled the riddle. He's "Well, wait a minute. So the only way that I can obey the command of God that he's clearly given me to kill Isaac, even though Isaac is the son of promise and God still be able to keep his promise, and God always keeps his promise, is if I obey God, I sacrifice Isaac, and then God raises Isaac from the dead, returns and restores him to me alive on this the third day, and then fulfills his promise through Isaac. And so then it's in faith and the resurrection, third day, that he moves forward. He says to these guys, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship, and then we will come again to you. And so Abraham, we read, took the wood of the burnt offering, and notice what he does with it. He lays it on Isaac, his son. Why? Because Abraham is like 115, 116, and Isaac is 15 or 16 years old. So who's stronger? Who's faster? Who has more endurance? It's the kid. But play this out for a minute, because the son of the father, the one and only son, In whom is the hope of the world is going to carry the wood upon which his life will be laid down up the hill where Jerusalem would later be built. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son. And Abraham himself, the father, took in his hands the implements of death, the fire and the knife. And they went, both of them together, In my mind, Abraham, about ten paces ahead, just silently weeping. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And Abraham said, here I am, my son. And Isaac asked the obvious question. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? So what does that tell you? Two things. One, Isaac knows what a burnt offering involves. He understands. We're going to get up there. We're going to build an altar out of uncut stones. We're going to put this wood that I'm carrying on top of that. Then we're going to take the lamb, right? And we're going to bind it because this is what we do. And then we're going to cut the throat and bleed it out and spend its life and consume its body in flame. Like we've got everything we need uh, except very obviously the lamb. And here's what else he knew. He knew that it is by the blood of a spotless, innocent lamb that God has ordained that all of the guilt of the guilty be covered somebody's got to pay the price, either the guilty person or an innocent one for him. And it tells you too, I mean, if you think about it, that Isaac still doesn't know what the plan is and his very significant role in it. And I love what Abraham says because it's prophetic. He says, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there from the uncut stones. And he he took the wood that Isaac had carried up the hill and he laid the wood in order on top of the stones. And then he told Isaac who the sacrifice was going to be. And here's what Isaac didn't do. He didn't wrestle free from his dad, who's clearly weaker than from him, you know. Run down the hill telling the servants, my dad's lost his mind. He's trying to kill me. You know, help me get him. we got to restrain him, tie him down. We'll put him on the donkey and bring him home, and maybe he'll come back to his minds." I mean, you know, he's 115 years old, good grief. Maybe that's the price. I'm nuts. Like, think about the relationship between this father and son for a minute. So much is the trust that the son, who's faster, who's stronger, who's far greater, clearly he could get away. So much is the trust in his father's word that having laid down his life, he will be raised from the dead. He willingly does it. He says, all right, so I understand how this works. You got to bind me, right? Like that's how we, it's what we do with the lambs, you know, hands and feet or whatever lays down on the wood. When they came to the place of which God told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, Abraham. Not once, but twice. He would have understood that as an expression of great love. And Abraham said, Here I am. Right here. And the angel said, Do not lay your hand on the boy. Or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, not a lamb, caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went, and he took the ram, and he offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son, which means, figuratively speaking, that he did receive his son back from the dead, the father, on the third day. But what it doesn't do is it doesn't provide us with an answer to the question. I mean, Isaac's asked a valid question. My father, where is the lamb? And Abraham has already said, look, God will provide for himself a lamb, my son, that will do what? That will be the innocent one who pays the price to set all the guilty free. 100% free. You've got to go to the New Testament for that. There you find Jesus, the true Isaac, the one who is himself supernaturally conceived, the joy and delight of his father who explodes upon the scene in the New Testament when John the Baptist announces and declares, behold, he's saying, look, and then what does he say? The Lamb of God, there it is, who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. Who in obedience to his father and in faith that he would be raised from the dead on the third day took the wood of the sacrifice upon his shoulders and carried it up a hill outside the city gates of Jerusalem. Except he knew that he was the sacrifice and he knew that nobody was going to stay his father's hand. And no one did. He shed his blood. His life was spent. He was put into a tomb. And then he defeated death being raised from the dead on the third day. But here's what I want you to think about. Like, you know, you you hear a story like that, and I I kind of, like, I want you to just, and there's lots of questions I understand, but I want you to just sit back and just sort of marvel over that for a minute. Who is this God, you know, that like, that so loved me? Because I know me, you know, I mean, eh, I'm okay, but I mean, I'm not like, wow. Wow. I know my failures, I know my flaws, I know all the things that, you know, are just, I wish I had never done or said or thought. You get the idea, like, who is this God who so loved me and who so loved you that he sacrificed his perfect son with whom he had that kind of relationship? Son, you will lay down your life and I will raise you on the third day. Okay, I'll do that. Who is this father that loves you like that? John is clearly drawing on the language of this story. You know, For God so loved the world that he gave his son, his one and only son, his only begotten son, his unique and all the world son. It mirrors this. It's going, hey, guess what that story's about? It's about Jesus and who is this son who so loved you? that in obedience to his Father, he laid his life down for you. And there are so many answers to that, all of them awesome and valid, and each one goes, he's greater. But one of the answers is he is the same God who from time to time says, what's in your hand? What you got there? What you hanging on to? What is that thing that is not me (laughs) but is most valuable to you? It's going to hurt me as much, if not more, than it hurts you. But so that you can have more of me, we're going to do this. Not to leave you empty, but to fill you. So I close with this. What has God removed your fingers from? You know the answer to that, right? Like you're like, oh, I know that. And if it's a person, my goodness, it's difficult, isn't it? But if that person died in faith in Jesus, you get that person back for forever. What is he removing your fingers from now? Like you're just going through it right now. He's removing your fingers from things. And then the second question is, how are you using that loss to gain more of him? Because whatever this was, he is infinitely greater, and more of him for you and for me is the goal. Let's pray together. Father, we, we praise you that there is one who is greater than life and greater than death. He is greater than money. He is greater than relationships. He is greater, infinitely so, than anything we would otherwise clasp to with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Lord, you call us to love you with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And you are good. God, give us a vision of Jesus, the one in whom we have hope, the one in whom we have peace. The one whom we can trust with the answers when we don't have the answers. Lord, remind us week by week in this study. Remind us now by your spirit that through faith in him, Lord, we have you. And in you we have all things. Do this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.